pretty good, huh? Tonight, 8 o'clock, um, cool beans. I don't know what that means. I heard Renee say cool beans. So after the service, bring me up to culturally uh, stuff, cool beans. But it's, it's going to be cool beans tonight. It's going to be awesome. I know what that is. That's kind of old word. Maybe cool beans is replacing the word awesome. I don't know. Anyways, uh, good morning. Glad to see you here. Uh, man, if you get a chance to see John after the service, uh, thank him. Uh, John saw the doctor Friday morning, had strep, his, his voice was, he couldn't even talk on Friday morning. He's on a Z-Pack, and he's like a stud, wasn't he? You know, he did a great job today. So you see John, thank him, you know, he really is. I know some of you think these worship guys are a little soft. That's not John's step. It's not our worship pastor. I'm telling you, he's a stud. So uh, make sure you, uh, you see him and tell him that. I'd appreciate that. Well, good morning, and happy March 4th. Yeah, March 4th. I mean, this is a big day. You realize, you realize four weeks from now is going to be the biggest event that this world is going to celebrate in 2013. Nearly 2.5, some say over 2.5 billion people are going to be celebrating coming up here in, uh, in four weeks. And they're going to be celebrating what? Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's going to be cool beans. I'm stuck on that word now. It's going, to be, it's going to be a great time. And I'm really excited about it, really looking forward to it. And have you noticed right about now, it seems like it's the only time where it's cool to talk about Jesus in the public square, in the marketplace, you know. He, he kind of shows up everywhere. Um, he'll, be, he'll be coming up as a cover again of uh, the three major national magazine, U.S. News, Time, Newsweek. All the major networks will have their special on who is Jesus. NBC uh, recently, a couple years back, reported that religion and spirituality-oriented books are the fastest-growing category purchased by adults in this country. Pretty cool. That's cool beans again, right? Um, I need to stop that, don't I? Jerry Harrington, I'm going to go home and say, my wife's going to be like, what is up with cool beans? Um, Jerry Harrington, so I, I got to know, what, I'm, I'm ADD. What, what is cool beans? Some of you that are, are younger, what does that mean? Is that a good, should I be using that language in church? It's okay? So what does it mean? It's like coffee beans or something? Or? <laughs> Sounds like you guys don't know any either. You're just using the word, you know. All right, so it's cool. Cool beans. All right. Jerry Harrington, a former executive producer of CNN. I, I took a break, involved you in finding out the answer. You didn't help me. Okay. This is what Jerry said. You with me? Okay. There is a growing spiritual fervor for spiritual wholeness. Get that word. Spiritual wholeness in America. People are increasingly finding that money, a house, and all the other conventional uh, markers of a good life, while nice, are no replacement for a sense of meaningful and purpose in life. He continues, Americans in many walks of life are looking to faith, something they can believe in and use to help them experience life more authentically. That's what we're all about here at Palm Beach Community Church, is being real, being authentic with intrinsic satisfaction. And maybe this morning you're one of them. Maybe you're here, you know, you're kind of just checking it out, trying to explore the, the dimensions of your own spiritual being, of who you are and, and who he is. And I think for the next four weeks, the next three weeks, we're going to get a, a really good, insightful, clear picture of Jesus as the Bible 
uh, projects and predicts and paints a picture for him. I think we're going to find this is going to be cool beans. It's going to be an incredible journey. And while we're on this journey, many of us are going to be watching uh, the History Channel. And then we'll be meeting this week in our growth groups to discuss what we watch. So I hope you'll check that out. I hope you'll be a part of that. And I'm looking forward to it myself. Now, ever since the, uh, the movie called The Passion of the Christ, you remember that? How many of you saw The Passion of Christ? First service, almost everybody. I guess they're more spiritual than you all. Um, but, um, you know, ever since that movie, Hollywood has discovered that you can make money doing Jesus stuff. So now, you know, it's become a little more popular in Hollywood to, to do more Jesus films and stories about the Bible. We're seeing a lot more of stuff like this. Now, these guys that are doing the epic Bible thing, you need to know, it's, it's the producer of Survivor producer of The Voice. I mean, these are some big name people. Uh, his wife is the lead in Touched by the Angel. She's acting in it. So it, it's really going to be cool beans. It's really going to be a, a, a great time and a, and a good series. I think we're going to like it. But back to the passion of Christ. Every year about this time, I usually watch that. For years, I'd watch it every time, kind of getting ready for Easter. I, I kind of get my minds revved up for Easter. I go to the Daytona 500, and then I watch the Passion of Christ. They go together to kind of rev you up and get you ready because Easter is like the Super Bowl for, you know, for churches and for pastors. So um, I have no idea where I'm going with all this. But, uh, you know, you, you kind of get all revved up. And I'd watch the Passion of Christ, which, by the way, I, I've stopped watching it. To be honest, I, I just can't watch it anymore. It's just... It just, it, just, it just devastates me. Um, and every time I watch that movie, two words uh, come to my mind. His courage. I mean, he was courageous. Courageous. And we all admire courageous men, courageous women. Most of us dream, especially guys, we dream of doing some courageous act, you know, the ancient Greeks used to list four cardinal virtues that we all need to aspire to have. Wisdom, courage, justice, and self-control. And if you want to see wisdom, courage, justice, and self-control, watch Jesus make the walk of passion down the Via Della Rosa to the hill of Golgotha. He demonstrated such courage that very few, if any of us, could muster. He lived what Deuteronomy 31 preached. Deuteronomy 31, 6 says this. Let's read it together. Can we in one voice? Be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God goes with you. Man, be strong and courageous. This week, be strong and courageous because the Lord your God goes with you. Jesus lived that verse every day of his life. And whether or not you believe him to be the Son of God, you have to acknowledge his immense personal strength. So let's talk this morning about Jesus and his strength, his courage. He was strong, first of all, physically. Mark 6, kind of referring to the people of his day and what they're saying about Jesus. They said, he's just a what? He's just a carpenter. He's just Mary's boy. Just a carpenter. Carpenter in those days didn't ride around in, in Dodge Hemi pickup trucks. You know, with leather seats and CD players. I mean, these guys were tough. They were strong. They didn't have forklifts. They didn't have modern scaffolding. It was a labor-intense occupation. They had to do their own masonry work. So they have to go, you know, and get the stone and bring it to the job site. They just didn't call Home Depot and have them deliver it. You know, they had to do their own woodwork, which means often they have to go out in the forest and cut down the trees they need to build whatever they're building. I mean, Jesus was physically strong. 
Now, I had a carpenter friend when I was up in, back in Memphis when I was in college and seminary. His name was Willie Parks. And great guy in my church, and he helped me finish out the second floor of my house. We did it together, and I had a chance to work with Willie. And Willie had these, uh, he was just a short, strong, wiry guy. He had the biggest hands of a little guy I've ever seen. And they were just all calloused and beat up and cut up. I mean, he was a man's man. He was a carpenter. And Willie wasn't the kind of guy you wanted to get in a fight with. Nor was Jesus. One time Jesus entered the temple and he turned over a bunch of tables and he threw out the money changers. These guys came up with this plan. You know, they can make a little more money. They were kind of robbed people as they're coming to the temple to offer their sacrifices, their gifts. And they would exchange their money to buy doves and different things to make sacrifices, part of their worship. And they were charging them too much. And it got Jesus really angry. And so he goes in there and he flips over the tables. And these guys were making a lot of money. And you know what the Bible says they did? They ran. I mean, he must have been a physically imposing man that they wouldn't even stand up and fight. They just ran off. And towards the end of his life, he was savagely beaten with a flagellum or a, a flagrum, whatever you like to call it, kind of like a, a bullwhip, uh, leather bands, strips of leather bands with a, usually hooks or glass or metal balls at the end of it. And these guys were playing, uh, uh, trained executionists. That's what they did for a living. These, some of these soldiers were to whip people when they misbehaved. And they'd literally take that whip and they'd crack it and pull it back so those balls would actually dig into the flesh and the flesh of the individual would be left in ribbons on their back. And it wasn't on their bottom side, it was on the back. Jesus was strong physically. And then he had to carry this 100-pound vertical beam of the, of the cross. They strapped it to his back and he had to carry it through the entire city of Jerusalem and then up a hill called Calvary. Make no mistakes about it. Jesus of Nazareth was a very strong man. Jesus was strong physically, and Jesus was strong mentally. He had a mental tenacity in everything he did. I mean, even at the age of 12, he told his parents. They left him there in Jerusalem. He's left there in the temple, you know, and they think he's going with them, and they realize he's gone, and they go back to find him, kind of a little upset, as most parents would be. And Jesus' response is this, didn't you know, he's 12, by the way, that I must be about my father's business. He was absolutely clear about his mission, his mission to come to this earth and to die for my sins and to die for your sins. He was determined. Luke 9, 51 says, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Nothing could seduce him, derail him, distract him from his mission. And it takes a lot of internal strength and, and mental toughness to stay on mission, to avoid the side streets of comfort and pleasure and sin. And when they began to pound the nails in his hands and his feet, Men of lesser strength would have screamed out, who needs this? They would have aborted God's redemptive plan. People don't die for a lie. He believed it, and he lived it. He was mentally strong. Jesus was strong emotionally. I mean, if we're honest, all of us have to admit that rejection hurts. It hurts to be disliked by others. 
it hurts when people misjudge us and misjudge our motives. It's hurt when people say things about our character, when they insult us. It hurts deeply. Some of you might say it doesn't hurt, but the truth is it hurts. And Jesus the second person of the Trinity came to this earth from heaven as the smartest person who ever lived, the most powerful, capable, compelling, compassionate teacher that ever walked this planet. But Isaiah, 750 years before Christ, he had prophesied this in Isaiah 53. He, referring to Christ, was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrow, Familiar with suffering. He was rejected by his own people. He was rejected by the entire religious establishment of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And on one occasion, he was even rejected by his own 12 disciples that when it got real hot in the kitchen, they turned and they ran. And even his best friend, Peter, Peter, who said in words that he would take a bullet for Jesus, when the pressure was on, Peter denied that he even knew him. And Jesus, in the court area, he heard Peter's denial. And I'm telling you, it hurt. It hurt. And he could have responded by saying, forget this. I'm out of here. But not once did he cave in. He never modified his message so he would be more popular. He wasn't always trying to work on spinning everything. He never once stopped proclaiming the truth of calling people to repentance and to faith. He said, my father has sent me to proclaim a message, the gospel, and I will proclaim it whether it's received or rejected, whether people applaud me or arrest me, beat me or kill me. I will preach the truth. I will preach the gospel. And he preached it with love and he demonstrated in love. Jesus was strong. He was strong physically. He was strong mentally. He was strong emotionally. And Jesus was strong morally. You know, when you read about the private lives of other famous leaders and teachers, it usually gets pretty ugly. You get behind the, into the private lines of past presidents, it's usually pretty ugly. It's really pretty disappointing. And I find myself, and I'm sure you find yourself asking, you know, really? I mean, really? How could he do that? How could she do that? And fame and fortune seems to bring out the dark side in all of us. But not so in Jesus Christ. Putting another way with the start of Major League Baseball coming up here in about another month or so, six weeks, whatever it is. Jesus, morally speaking, he batted 1,000. He never hit a fly ball. He never struck out. He never had a single error. One time he even said to his distractors in Mark chapter 8, he said, can any of you convict me of a single misleading word, a single sinful act? And the Bible says not a single person could think of a single thing that they could point out that he had done wrong in his life. They stood in total silence. Jesus was morally impeccable. And whatever you think of Jesus, if you believe him to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world or not, don't look at him 
the way Hollywood usually portrays him is some weak man that was confused about the hardships and the struggles of life. He was the strongest person who ever walked on this planet physically, mentally, emotionally, and morally. He was so strong, but yet he was so sensitive. And if you want to accuse Jesus of anything, accuse him of being so gentle and understanding that women, women just followed him everywhere. Because in those days, women were not valued. Women were not honored. And Jesus honored them and valued them and esteemed them and treated them like another equal human being. And they just came in droves and followed him because he was so strong, but yet he was so gentle. And usually people with great strengths so show little or no capacity for sensitivity. Think about it. The two are kind of mutually exclusive, aren't they? Toughness and tenderness, strength and sensitivity. I mean, tough generals who form battle plans. They do those battle plans knowing that they might be losing and taking some casualties, sometimes 10 <clears throat> up to 20%. They're tough. They rate high on the strength quota, but low in the sensitivity quota. Kind of like some powerful CEOs, man. They're, they're high in the strength quota. I mean, they can lay off 5,000 people without a trace of emotion, you know. It was just a business decision. We had to make the numbers work. Great strength and deep sensitivity rarely coexist in the same person but not so in Jesus. Jesus was strong, but Jesus was sensitive. Let's look at the sensitivity of Jesus. Jesus was caring. In Mark chapter 10, we read, the people brought, what did he bring to them? Children. Thank you, children. Children to Jesus. Brought children to Jesus. Now, you need to understand that culture. You know, they, they, Children were down below almost slaves. I mean, they didn't value and appreciate women. They didn't value and appreciate slaves. And then you had children way down there. They found, you know, at one time in Palestine, there's like about 1.4 million uh, men and about a million women. Why was there only a million women? Because they let 400,000 little girls die because they were little girls. They didn't value women in Jesus' day. They didn't value children in Jesus' day. And that's, that's the context here of Mark chapter begins to give you a better picture of who this man Jesus is. Okay, that's the context. The people brought what to Jesus? Children to Jesus, hoping he might touch them, bless them. And the disciples did what? He shooed them away. You think, how could they? That was the culture of the day. Kids weren't important. They were a nuisance. They shooed them away. But Jesus was, what's the word? Irate. And he let them know it. He spoke truth. Don't push these children away. Don't ever get between them and me. The children are at the very center of life and the kingdom. Radical teaching. We'll talk about that next week. Mark this. Jesus says, unless you accept God's kingdom and the simplicity of a child, you're never going to get in. And then gathering the children up in his arms, he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. He loved them. Jesus was caring. He was strong, but he was sensitive. And Jesus was compassionate. 
Now, we're going to really dive into this in a couple weeks and talk about his compassion. Um, but let me just say that, you know, the same one who had all this power to heal the sick, to make the lame walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, that same Jesus with all this power was moved to tears. Mark 9.36 says, when he looked out over the crowds, talking about Jesus, his heart broke. So confused and, and aimless they were, like sheep with no shepherd. And when he came to the graveside of, of one of his friends, the Bible tells us this in John eleven thirty five. Let's read it together, can we? Jesus started crying. Jesus was compassionate. He was caring. And Jesus was considerate. He was always thinking of others. He would be speaking to thousands, and then he would kind of sneak off and meet one-on-one -on -one with hurting people, broken people, grieving people, confused people, troubled people, forgotten people. And this would frustrate his disciples. They would say, you know, we don't have time for this, Jesus. I mean, what are you doing? You're getting distracted. But he was so concerned about others, he could rarely go from point A to point B without stopping and sitting with someone in the middle of some kind of mess. He was caring and compassionate. And I don't know about you, but I know about me. I need to be more like Jesus. I need to be more like Jesus. You know, by the grace and goodness of God, I was very blessed to grow up in a very loving home. And, and I'm pretty strong emotionally and physically and spiritually and morally. You know, I've said no to sin all my life. But all my life, I've struggled with being more sensitive and being more like Christ. Being more compassionate and caring. I need to be more like Jesus. Do you? We become so cynical in our culture today. So cynical. We don't feel the pain and the hurt of those that are hurting anymore. You know, Jesus never saw a sick person. He didn't want to heal them. He never saw a despaired person. He didn't want to give them hope. He never saw a wayward person that he didn't want to put his arms around them and invite them back into the family of God. He was so strong, but yet he was so sensitive. And as I was thinking about those two terms, it, it triggered a thought, a story I read years ago about a young Korean woman who gave birth to a child that was fathered. The father was an American soldier and who returned after the Korean War and left her there, and she gave birth to this little girl. And because this child was of mixed race and had curly, light brown hair and, and lighter skin than the Korean culture, she was severely rejected by society, even as an infant. I mean, many of these Korean mothers that got stuck with these mixed-breed babies from the American soldiers, they would kill the infant. They would let it die. They usually just let them die. They don't kill them. They just let them die because they grew up with such shame. And this woman tried to keep this little girl alive for seven years, but the harassment and the rejection was just too much for her. So at the age of seven, she turns this little girl loose, sends her out on the streets. She abandons her, and she lives on the streets. 
And as she's living on the street, she's being ruthlessly tormented by the people, by her culture, the Koreans. And they would call her the ugliest word in the Korean language, tuki, tuki, which means alien devil, alien American devil soldier. She was the daughter of an alien devil, tuki. And years later, she wrote this. When you hear what you are when you are a little child, day after day, you begin to believe that about yourself. I believe they could do whatever they wanted to me physically because I wasn't a person. I was inhuman. I was dirty. I was unclean. I had no name, no identity, no family or future. I hated myself. And she barely scraped by for two years on the streets. She finally found her way into an orphanage. And there at that orphanage, she began to be, you know, cared for a little bit and loved. And lots of kids and lots of little kids. And one day they heard after she was there that an American was coming to adopt a baby and take him home. And and the orphanage was all excited because it's the dream of every child to be a part of a family and to grow up in a family. And usually the Americans and people coming to adopt, they usually want the youngest, youngest baby, and they usually want the youngest male baby. The older children, the older girls, were usually left to grow up in the orphanage to take care of the other kids. And so when she heard that they were coming to adopt, she said she kind of got excited because, you know, they would, these, these older little girls, nine, eight, seven-year-old girls, they would help wash and bathe and get these little boys looking pretty and get them looking good so the American would take one of them home. This is what she recalls when the Americans came, this couple. She said, it was like Goliath had come back to life. Remember, Koreans are kind of a little smaller in statue, American. It was like Goliath had come back to life, so big and strong. I saw that man with his huge hands lift up each baby, and I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face. I knew that if he could, they would have taken the whole lot home with them. And then he saw me out of the corner of his eye. Now, let me tell you, she writes, I was nine years old, didn't even weigh 30 pounds, I had worms in my body, I had lice in my hair, I had boils all over me. I was full of scars. I wasn't a pretty sight. But that man came over to me and rattled away in English, and I looked up at him, and and then he took this huge hand of his, and he laid it on my face. He was saying, in effect, I want this child. And to me, that is a picture of Jesus up close and personal, so strong, but yet so sensitive, so strong, but yet in our lives, he peers beneath the ugliness of our sin. He looks beyond the scars of our failure and our bad choices, and he sees at the core of us a soul that was made in the image of God, And he wants to reach out to every single one of us. And he wants to cup our face. He wants to take his strong but gentle hand and cup our face and say to us, 
I love you. I want this child. Something shocking happened that day with that nine-year-old Korean girl. As the man was reaching out to her, she said, and I quote again, the hand on my face felt so good. And inside I was saying, oh, oh, keep that up. Don't let your hand go. But nobody had ever shown that kind of affection for me. And I didn't know how to respond. So listen to this. I yanked his hand off my face and I looked at him and I spat on, spat on him. And then I ran away. Can you imagine that? Her window of opportunity had opened up and she slammed it shut. And we think to ourselves, how could she? And yet if the truth was made known to most of us in here this morning, there has been opportunities in our life in which we felt and sensed God being so close and real to us and we being so spiritually responsive to Christ. But yet we turned and we walked away. Maybe as as a child, maybe as when you went to catechism or Sunday school and you had a teacher share with you about Jesus Christ and his love for you and you kind of were drawn to God and drawn to Christ. But then you got into high school and, and Jesus wasn't quite so cool in high school. And you kind of slowly turned your back on him. Or maybe it was at your wedding Will the minister encourage you to make Christ the center of your marriage, the center of your home, the, the center of your life? And, and you started with such spiritual sensitivity to want to do the right thing. You felt so attracted to God. But then you got a career going and the busyness of life and kids. And you kind of let your spiritual receptivity just die out and go away. Or maybe you are facing a medical crisis or a, or a financial crisis or a child-rearing crisis. And you desperately cried out for God for help. And you sensed his love. You sensed his presence. You sensed him coming through for you. And you made a vow. You made a commitment to him. And night time has passed. And you haven't lived up to your side of the bargain. Can you remember a time like that in your life? When you kind of shut and slam shut that window of opportunity. You see, Jesus is a lot like this man and this woman that came to that orphanage that day. You see, they understood what was behind that little girl's reaction. And despite her initial rejection, they came back the next day and were still willing to adopt her. They named her Stephanie. No longer was she Tukey. And they cleaned her up, and they raised her as their own. And today, she's a mother, she's happily married, and she's a follower of Jesus Christ. And though you maybe have turned your back on Jesus, you need to know that Jesus Christ has never turned his back on you. That regardless to what you do, Regardless to the bad choices you make, Jesus Christ has never turned his back on you. But let me tell you something. There's some danger out there. The danger isn't Jesus rejecting you. The danger is every single time you get close to Christ and you get committed to Christ, but yet you begin to walk away. Yet you begin to harden your heart. The danger is someday you won't respond. 
The danger is someday your heart will become hardened and you won't know the Christ that loves you. You won't know the Christ that's so sensitive to you because you have chosen to harden your heart. He hasn't hardened his. We have hardened ours. And if the Spirit of God is working in your life, if you're sensing that God is trying to reach out to you, my advice to you is to grab on to the hand, the sweet, sensitive, gentle, but strong hand of Jesus Christ and never let go. Never let go. Because he's more than just a man. He's a Savior. He is so strong, but yet he is so sensitive. He's the person I need to be. And he's the person that you need to be. Can we bow our heads in prayer? You know, Jesus completed his mission. And he did it with such courage. He willingly chose to lay down his life. He didn't have to die. He chose to die. Because he loves you. And he loves me. And the Bible says that when he was on the cross... God took my sin and your sin. He put it on Jesus and punished him in our place so that we could be forgiven. And I'd like to ask you this morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, can you just visualize right now Jesus standing before you? Can you visualize him reaching out with his strong but gentle hand and cupping your face? And him saying to you, I want this child. I love you. And what I want more than anything else is to be in relationship with you, for you to talk with me throughout your day, for you to do life with me. Jesus wants a relationship with you. Will you open up your heart? Will you put your faith and trust in him? Will you respond to his invitation? Maybe this morning, some of you for the first time, you say, Jesus, I acknowledge that I've done sin, that I've made some bad choices in life. Forgive me. Thank you for dying for me. I want you to be my forgiver and leader, my Lord and my Savior. Others of you, maybe you can join me right now in praying and saying, Jesus, I need to know you better. I need to be stronger. Some of you are really lacking on the, on the strength side of life. You need to be stronger morally. You need to be stronger emotionally. You need to be stronger physically. And you need to say right now, Jesus, I need to be stronger like you. I need to have your courage. And then others of us right now need to pray and say, Jesus, you know, I need to be more sensitive. I need to be more caring and compassionate and more understanding and, and less judgmental. I need to be compassionate. Can you pray this morning and say, Jesus, I need to know you better. I want to know you better. I want to be a part of your spiritual family. God, we thank you so much this morning for Jesus. We didn't live 2,000 years ago, and I think it's hard for us to realize the man that he was and what he taught and in spite of the culture in which he lived. God, we thank you that you love us and you sent your son because you love us. And we thank you for his strength 
and for his sensitivity. And we pray, God, that you will help us as your church, that you will help us as Christ's followers, that over the next couple weeks that we will become more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, I'd like to ask each of you to grab this comment card and take a next step to grow spiritually. It's things that you can choose to do right now to respond to that invitation of Christ. We're getting ready to have a baptism service coming up here on Easter Sunday. Some of you might want to begin signing up for that. If today you pray to receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we got a, a Bible and a booklet um, that we'd love to give you to help you understand what that means. No questions asked. Just go by the information kiosk. Mark it on this card. I'd like to ask each of you this week to read Matthews chapter 5 through 7. Three chapters. It's known in history and literature as the greatest message ever delivered, even greater than Martin Luther, I have a dream speech. And we're going to be talking about that next week as we talk about his teaching. So I'd like to ask you this week, spend some time reading, the, reading through that, those chapters several times. Very interesting teaching, and we're going to be talking about that. The third thing on that card, man, I'd like to be a part of a Bible mini-series, Growth Group. If you're interested in that, mark that on this side. We're trying to get more growth groups to start this week. And if you want to be a part of one of those, please let us know that. And as uh, Renee alluded to, we'd love to have you for our, our next Newcomer's Lunch. Indicate that and go by and pick up your free ticket so we can prepare enough food on the 24th of November. It's going to be a great time. And my wife and I especially would like to really get to know you better as well as the other pastors and staff. Well, at this time, I'm going to like to ask our volunteers, our ushers and servers, if you would be uh, kind enough to come forward. And this time, we're going to take some time, and we're going to worship God by giving because he has given so much to us. Let's pray, and then we're going to receive our offering this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you've given so much to us, Father. And it's with real joy, God, that we write our checks and we give back to you because you have given so much to us. Help us to be more compassionate and more caring and to be more generous. God, help us to have your heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.